Hi there! Thanks for tearing yourself away from the Queen's Gambit, or simply staring at the wall, and for joining me for this episode of the Unlocking Landscapes podcast. I'm your voluntary host, Daniel Greenwood. Thanks so much to all the listeners to the pod so far. I really appreciate the feedback and support you've given. We've got some really interesting people lined up this year, and I'm really looking forward to sharing their stories with you. In England, we're still under lockdown, so these are indoor pods recorded over Zoom. And just a disclaimer, any wildlife or landscape sound effects are purely accidental. This month, I'm talking to Raki Nikahesia, a photographer who lives in New Delhi, India. Raki splits his art into documentary photography and interdisciplinary exploration. He ventures into the worlds of anthropology, botany and cosmology, using the camera to capture new findings. I met Raki in London several years ago through conservation volunteering, when we bonded over having similar camera systems. It's not the case anymore though because his camera is way too heavy for me and I've gone for something much lighter. I find Raki's photos and other work really inspiring. I really enjoy watching his Instagram stories showing life in New Delhi, but also the tropical landscapes and wildlife of India, something you really don't get in England. Make sure to check out his website and social links which are listed in the description. In this episode, we talk about life in New Delhi, where violent protests are taking place and people are adapting to life under COVID. Raki talks about the amazing wildlife he experienced as a child in Sri Lanka before fleeing civil war and living in Vienna. Raki also shares his stories about the indigenous communities he's worked with in places like Mozambique and trips to the remote Andaman Islands in recent months. We talk about how growing up with vipers in the garden and encountering elephants have inspired his passion for wildlife and the landscapes of the world. Thanks again for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi Raki. Hi Daniel. Thank you very much for joining me on the Unlocking Landscapes podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm great. Thank you. Great stuff. Um, where are you right now in the world? I'm in New Delhi in India at the moment. And what is life like in New Delhi? Uh, so it's it's been warming up slowly. It has been a cold winter in New Delhi. Uh, I went for a really nice stroll in my happy place in New Delhi, which is the Sunder Nursery. Uh, it's it's an old or newly done Mughal uh, garden, and I've been photographing there. So it was been a good uh, good morning, especially that the smog is lifting slowly, and it has been particularly a smoggy winter this this season. So I've been like enjoying springs, appreciating springs even more so. Yeah, I, I follow you on Instagram, as you know, um, and I've, I watch your Instagram stories whenever you update them because they're, um, they're sort of the sort of thing I like to look at in my lunch break or, my, or an afternoon or morning break because it completely takes you away from, uh, from England. Um, mm. So it's really interesting to see that. But I remember a video you had of uh, the smog and I thought it was mist. It was so heavy. So what, what's that like? uh it's 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 very heavy as you say it's it's uh very unhealthy as well uh that you'll know and at some points it, it it can be so thick that you barely see two meters or three meters and i think there's a maximum level of what the who uh authorizes on, on, a, on a normal 
basis on this uh, microparticles and uh, sometimes it's so so bad it's sometimes i don't know uh, the ten, ten, tenfold uh, 10 times higher than uh, the maximum recommended uh, pollution uh, air quality so it can be quite intense but i think that particular video was uh, i was on the way to the mountainous areas in uttarakhand which is uh, north of delhi and it was so bad that the whole tour up to the mount mountainous hills and there was a six hour car drive was completely covered in smog uh so we i mean obviously we couldn't open the windows but uh, the moment you stepped out it really smelled uh quite bad and you can you, it, it has this very specific uh, petrol smell to it. And is it petrol that's causing the smog? The short answer is uh, yes, it's, it's partly partly that, but the bigger part is um, so-called stubble burning, which the farmers in, in the Punjab area, perhaps you heard also of the farmers' protests recently happening in India, um, uh, it's the stubble burnings which are one of the main causes, basically this, this huge smoke uh, clouds are going into Delhi and because of the cold weather they whether they linger on over the city so it's 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 quite bad especially in the colder months and so that stubble burning i presume that's to increase fertility or to to free up the soil for replanting again exactly so it's basically to free up the soil uh, and it has been forbidden in many countries i mean also in in any european country it's it's forbidden since since a well, while i don't know how long but it's just been forbidden but here it's sort of the easiest and most cost effective way to do it there are two cycles in terms of agriculture and farming in india and uh, the, this happens only twice a year but it is the worst uh, during the cold months so especially in Delhi, the, I think that's the majority of where the pollution comes, not only the traffic, but the majority is the stubble burning. But there's another thing which is quite, quite bizarre and unique. It's the street sweeping requirements within the city. So basically in a lot of countries or cities uh, where this is not an issue, street sweeping is uh, being carried out normally during nights. And uh, in, in Delhi, it's in the mornings. So the pollution is the highest in the mornings where we have at our flat here in Delhi uh, various air purification systems, but also like a monitor before you go out, you have to always wear a big face mask. Uh, so you look like a Batman baddie normally. Um, so you, it's really crucial that you wear it and you sometimes see it and it's normally when it's really bad, it states hazardous and it looks really like, like after like a nuclear fallout or something. Goodness me, that sounds quite scary. Um, it almost sounds like London in the 1800s or early 1900s. Exactly, yeah. Are there plans to improve air quality realistically? I think, yes, the, I mean, the government is trying, I think, hard to uh, uh, push different plans through and basically help this issue because lots of people obviously are not so lucky and don't have like air purification systems. And it's, it's particularly bad if you're, if, if you're a child and have like, you know, un, 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 not fully developed lungs. So it's, it's particularly bad. Um, for for many people and it's not only in the in the capital but many other cities in india as well uh so there's plans but another issue is as well of course um there's no alternatives for for example farmers instead of the 
was trouble burning. So there needs to be also, I think, like more uh, sort of solutions for alternatives where, where the people can um, either prevent trouble burning or have other sources of uh, heating instead of, for example, using wood during the cold periods. But it's, it's a very complicated and very politically full discussion here in, in India, but also in many other countries, I think. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the farmers' protests, and that has come through in the UK news, um, and obviously Europe as well, because uh, Greta Thunberg and got Rihanna. involved. Sorry. And Rihanna. And Rihanna, yeah. Um, are you seeing evidence of that unrest around where you live at all or in your day-to-day life? On a daily basis, normally, because um, a lot of our travel around the city is basically linked to that. So especially the the point I said, we, we were, I was going with with, with another photographer, who's a, who's a, who's a good friend of mine, um, to Utrecht. And during that period, we had to take so many different routes, which are not basically outlined on Google Maps, to uh, get to Utrecht because of the roadblocks due to the farmers' protests. So the farmers were coming from, from the direction of Utrecht and Punjab into the capital to uh, protest for like various uh, reasons, which I'm sure you've been following and reading as well. Um, and you can see it. I mean, there's been clashes as well. And uh, a recent one has been uh, where I wanted to go to, 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 to my studio space, which is on the other side of, of town. And uh, there has been... I think one farmer lost his life uh, where they tried to take over the flag uh, at the Red Fort, which is sort of like a very important site in in Delhi. So they basically uh, managed to like break through and uh, take take over the Red Fort in Delhi. So there has been several cases, I think, uh, clashes between uh, police and farmers. Yeah, it sounds really serious, Um, much like the sort of unrest we were seeing last year um, after the murder of George Floyd. And there's obviously in Belarus, there's um, social unrest because of the election there. And then there's what's going on in Russia at the moment. So there's a lot of people taking to the streets at the moment, aren't there? Mm. Um, I just wanted to, I wanted to ask you as well. I mean, I met you in London in, (laughs) in the woods. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I, it, sound, it always sounds really strange when I say that, Th- through, um, through conservation volunteering. And I was wondering if you could just g- give an outline of how, how you came to, to be living in New Delhi. So, so basically, I think I, I boomeranged my life in that way. I was I'm originally from Sri Lanka. I was, I was born in Sri Lanka and ended up in a place close to Sri Lanka. So I, uh, when I was in uh, Around five years old, I, I moved to um, Austria, uh, uh, Vienna, in, uh, in the, well, the capital of, of Austria is Vienna. Uh, moved moved to Austria and basically grew up there. And that was mainly uh, under circumstances of the, of the civil unrest and the civil war in, in in Sri Lanka, which was happening there. And that was in um, from eighty three till uh, for thirty years from then on, basically. Um, but basically. From there, I, I came to uh, live in Vienna. I grew up there, and uh, 
met my wife there in Vienna. Uh, we were both working there, and uh, then she had the opportunity to to come to London, and uh, we ended up near near the Horniman in Forest Hill, uh, near the woodland, and there we met. And then again, my wife had with her job, and my mind was uh, more flexible. Uh, to move to Delhi with her work, uh, she was working for for the for the foreign service for the UK foreign service um, on health issues, and uh, since then we've been in Delhi, and it's, it's it's since two years now. How do you find it compares living in New Delhi compared with place like London? Uh, both cities have their amazing sites and their challenges. Uh, both are very hectic and busy, I would say. Um, funnily enough, I found it easier to adjust to New Delhi life. It has been sort of uh, more welcoming in a way, although London, I, uh, it's, 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 it's still still a home for me and I, I really love London, especially being in that uh, southern part of uh, London. Which was, which was really great six years we, we lived there. Um, but I think there's, there's, there's real a lot of differences, but also like uh, a lot of, lot, lot of capital cities and a lot of bigger cities share that sense of busyness in a way. And everybody's uh, busy and hectic. But the nice thing about uh, Delhi is, I think, compared to London, you can just call your friends up and just say, oh, let's go for a pint tomorrow, whereas in London you have to uh, take out your file of facts and basically arrange a meeting within the next two years. Which You're still using a file of facts. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. Yeah, everyone in London is uh, super busy, super beers all the time. Exactly. Um, always on the move. Well, probably not now, but yeah, normally. Yeah. How has COVID affected your life in New Delhi? In the beginning, it was a complete lockdown, and I think lots of countries didn't know how to react to it. I mean, still, there's, there's discussions around how to react to it, but uh, there was a complete lockdown. From one day to the, uh, to, the, to the next, basically, people were not allowed to move out, uh, causing also a lot of uh, stress, for, especially for day laborers in, 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 in cities like Delhi, uh, in India, to be able to have sufficient food or they had to move back to their villages which is also not ideal uh, carrying also covid back to these rural areas uh, so there was there was a sort of sense of like very quick not really thought through action i guess um to to an unknown enemy i guess and um, then it evolved that in the next next uh, few few months were basically being spent at home uh, working, learning to make uh, cheese and wine mainly, and uh, which, which, has, which has been a very good life lesson. That, and sounds, then, pretty, that sounds pretty good, Raki. <laughs> um, it, it, in the beginning, it unfortunately didn't taste pretty good, but after, afterwards it, it, it evolved and it got better. And then from there on, it basically, uh, to where we are now in, in Delhi, it's, it's basically if people would not wear, be wearing masks, I wouldn't have the feeling that I would be in a, you know, in a global pandemic. And on, on, I mean, one would say, okay, this is like really horrible and shocking, but there's sort of social distancing and uh, being India, there's lots of uh, closeness, I think, uh, because it's physically impossible for a lot of communities in like uh, 
certain neighborhoods to keep the distance because of space. Um, but people are wearing masks and the mortality rate is very low. And uh, I saw some, some figures yesterday that the overall case load is similar to that of uh, last year in, in, in June, where it was still compared to the uh, number of people is still not that high. Yeah. Well, it, it is high, but like uh, comparatively it went down again. Yeah. Yeah. In, in England, it's pretty, pretty terrible to be honest, but yeah, very, very different situation. It, it would appear. Um, so moving on to talking about your work, you describe yourself as an interdisciplinary photographer. And you just told me before as well, that if you search for it on Google, you're the number three. <laughs> Exactly. Not, not that many people look for it, but yeah. No, I, I had that with, um, um, there's a place in Holland called Oostvardersplassen. Oh yeah, like, I know. Yeah. You know about that? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite famous because of re, this rewilding project there. And um, I went there in 2017 um, with a group of uh, sort of conservation professionals for a, um, a trip there. And I wrote a, an article about it and I put it on my, on my website and, it has a huge amount of traffic and I think it's because I've managed to get into the tag. The tag is oh, right. so unusual that if you search for it and also cause it's in English, it comes up on the first page. So, so that, that was quite an interesting, interesting point you made there about, about getting into the search engines. Did, did you do that on purpose or did you? Yes. Normally it would be that I would probably say, no, no, it was, it was, absolutely not on purpose but like this this, this one was on, on purpose that i uh, got some tips from like uh, some people who are serious and they know about this kind of stuff so i got some advice from them uh, how to do this uh, things how to outsmart the algorithms so i mean i don't think we outsmart them but use them for your own benefits and because you had a great quote about why it's important to focus on a small area yeah, I mean, absolutely. So basically, the, the reason also for focusing on one area of expertise is obviously like my interest. But another thing was, which, which I think we talked about earlier, is uh, there were some really interesting uh, talks on TED and one of uh, a speaker who was basically inventing things which, which have no purpose and have no use. She did this like amazing TED talk. She said the most important, the single most important uh, fact to be an expert in your field or the best in your field to have a very small field. So I thought that's, that's actually a very good advice. I shall take that. I think it's definitely true of the internet age as well. I noticed um, on social media, the stuff that gets most traction is quite unusual things. I mean, personally for me, the stuff I get, I mean, I'm not out there looking for loads of likes and stuff like that and obviously not getting it, but um, ancient tree photos are like wildfire on twitter um there's something about really yeah something about trees on twitter people really are into that but also fungi which is such a broad area anyway but it's it's quite it's quite it's probably more fashionable well Um, as you know i'm a big fan of fungi yeah yeah and i remember you sent me some some nice pictures through some of the stuff everywhere you seem to go you seem to have fungi coming out everywhere like in austria and uh (laughs) also in the tropical rainforests in in india um but yeah just just so for everyone who's listening i mean we're going to be talking about raki's work what motivates and inspires raki to do the work he does but also the places that um you visited there as well and and the the equipment you're using and um some of the communities that you've been involved with there um but 
I think, Raki, one of the, the best thing I can ask you to, to get into that is how did you get into the current area of work? Um, so what, what I'm doing now is, is mainly photography, documentary photography and contemporary art, um, neither of which I've studied. Um, so basically, my, my, my career where, when I started off uh, was, was in journalism and there I already had, the, had, had a very keen interest in, in, in photography. Uh, but I wanted to do a bit more and I was quite interested in, in like the area of development aid and being able to meet different people, understand different issues and contribute to, I guess, a great, greater good. And uh, yeah, you can, you, can, you can hear I was like just out, straight out of uni. So I did economics and, uh, you know, you want to change the world and all these things. Um, but I started then interning and I was really lucky to work with the, with the United Nations and that was in, in Vienna. I worked for the uh, UN body, which is focusing on, on, on industries uh, called UNIDO and it's, it's based in one of the headquarters in Vienna. And I was uh, basically during that time uh, in Vienna. Um, and then for the majority of my career, then I switched when I moved to, to, to London. Um, I was working for uh, the British Standards Institution and there also was working on projects from China to, to uh, Mongolia and also some, some, some projects in Africa. Also very much looking at policy level work to like help countries to, for example, improve their food safety standards or uh standards in general but i was always quite interested since a since a young age when i was growing up in sri lanka uh in into wildlife and basically learning more about wildlife but also doing something uh, i just didn't know what and i was just like very lucky that uh i was just living across sydney hill wood uh which had sort of volunteer workshops and volunteer days and that's i think where daniel and i also met uh in london in the in the woods as daniel said um and i was so i got more and more interested into it and i then thought it would be great to work there and one day i was working in mongolia and it was a very cold winter and in in one of the pubs i was meeting a, a person who was working for the london zoo for zoological society and he basically said it would be a great idea to have more people at uh, at the zoo at london zoo um, who are also have a, who have a connection with with, with uh, international business i guess and with like trade and um, having this linkage between wildlife and the global economy in a way um, so that's when I first really thought about London Zoo. And two years on, there was actually an opening for London Zoo. And I thought, okay, this, this must be like uh, uh, destiny. Uh, I might apply for that. And um, applied for it. So I was like uh, working uh, within a team for marine conservation where we looked at certain things uh, related to marine habitats, but also linking 
people's livelihoods into sort of the global supply chain, which, for, for example, like using recycled carpets to put them back into the supply chain, which also help the communities, but also would prevent things like ghost fishing, which is basically like uh, uh, floating nets, which be, uh, ne like kill uh, fish or the, the, the habitats uh, where they, where they are, and it's 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 massive contributor to plastic pollution. So basically, looking at sustainable options. So I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, but as said, I was still interested in photography, and also more and more into into art. Um, and ultimately, I was very interested in the works and the roles I was doing. But I was very, quite passionate about the photography. And for me, I think it was sort of a way of bringing a change or trying to uh, show people a different way of uh, basically how art could contribute to for things like uh, environmental issues or uh, communities and um, issues related with migration which will be potentially a bigger and bigger problem in, in future so my way of contributing to that starting from coming out of uni trying to or wanting to change the world into like coming into art and basically using art as, as, as a way to like contribute to society in a certain way. You said how you started out in journalism, but the thing I, I really picked out was you said that you're talking about your memories of wildlife as a child in Sri Lanka. And it almost sounded like you rekindled that interest through a, an urban woodland in South London. And I think that's something that seems to happen quite often with people who enter into sort of environmental volunteering. I'm sure it's the same for loads of other things, but particularly with exposure to nature um, in terms of, you know, as a child, that there's a period in your life between the age of maybe, I don't know, 12 and 25 for a lot of people, or even older, where they just don't have an interest in that anymore. Those sort of early memories of, of wildlife in Sri Lanka, like what, you know, what, what was that like? I, I grew up in a place near to Colombo, which uh, which is sort of a agricultural based uh, region. It's it's it, it was very very nice when I was, when I was a kid, basically. So it, it was um, my 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 granddad's family and my. Both both my parental sides said they were mainly looking at like agriculture and farming in, in in that kind of context. So we basically grew up on a massive chicken farm. Uh, so that has obviously nothing to do with wildlife. But when I was a kid growing up there, it was uh, basically running through the paddy fields, and we had I had so many cousins there which were in the same age. So for us exploring the little streams, being in the jungle on a daily basis. Um, after school or during the school holidays and mind you it was only until I was five and then only in the summer holidays when I came back uh, with, with my parents as a typical you know migrant holiday would be the places you come from or you have uh, you have uh, family or relatives as, as, as a very economical way of staying somewhere uh, but it was it was fascinating for me that was like a very important memory basically being being out and about um, having a great time in the in, in the great outdoors if you wish um, and sort of having this very childish feeling of exploring and looking for little things uh, and trying to understand on how everything works so it was a beautiful thing and I think that being in 
um, in London, I was always looking for that. I, I was never a big city person. I say that probably have like a Stockholm syndrome because I'm I'm constantly living in big cities. But uh, <laughs> I have definitely like like a keen interest in this kind of wildlife. Uh, scenario and the change from Vienna to Sri Lanka was very very radical in that kind of context although I really love the nature in, in Austria as well uh, absolutely stunning but in Sri Lanka it was there were so many animals which were also potentially deadly and that doesn't really go well with childhood curiosity I think so we were exploring a lot and not really having any boundaries to like you know we had we had uh, two king cobras in, in, in our garden and there were constantly little wipers and different snakes. So there, there's always like this danger where you like have a respect for nature, where, you know, there are certain boundaries you need to like respect, which, which is sort of a good thing in a way, I guess. Uh, but I had like different memories, also a recent one, I think one was when I was, uh, very little and my granddad used to have water buffaloes and, one day, and it was a herd of, I think, like 30, 30 animals. One day, it was like this Jurassic Park moment where we were sitting outside and the tea began to make little circles inside. And it looked really, you know, that moment in Jurassic Park where, where the T-Rex is coming out. Uh, there was this massive herd just running through the whole grounds basically demolishing everything they, they had just like a scare for one second and because of that uh, they were running towards us and we we managed to escape but it was definitely like a like a memory uh and i had a similar memory uh one and a half years back where i was um and that was when i started doing my photography and i was uh, uh basically working on a series on the last indigenous people in sri lanka where my cousin uh, Ranger and I were in a national park and that was one of the national parks which was newly opened. And it was also one of the areas where the, the war was happening when the war was still taking place in Sri Lanka, the civil war. And the elephants there were particularly not very accustomed to visitors. And these guys would have like three to four visitors or tourists coming into the park. And it was quite a big park. Um, and the elephants were quite quite wild and they made us feel that it's their territory. And I remember particularly one place where we were driving through and we went to like little Jeep and it, that could have been easily destroyed. Uh, seeing this massive water fountain rising up and we thought it's just some sort of weird uh, gas leak explosion or something. Uh, but it was just like huge bull who saw us and uh, probably smelt us like miles, miles away, standing there and basically not moving and playing around with water and really showing its presence. And we were just completely scattered. We were just like, the ranger said like, drive close and we can like see what's, what's happening. And I said, we said like, we're definitely not gonna drive close. We're just gonna stay and do nothing. Whereas my cousin was basically, uh, it, it was it was our car, but because he was driving, because I didn't have the Sri Lankan driver license, um, he was putting the window up, and the ranger and I looked at him and said, "Like, well, that's that's not going to make a difference, mate, if he's attacking us." But uh, we we managed to get out of it, and uh, it was again this this feeling of uh, you are actually very little compared to to nature. Yeah, and that's something that is quite difficult to to come by in the UK in a place like the south of England, the best you're going to get for that is 
in many ways it's some of the trees that you'd find actually growing in in london so some of those big london plane trees and um out in other parts of the south there will be the the old oak trees and big beech trees and stuff like that and maybe some of the big trees you get in some of the formal gardens Another one memory was basically that's that's less violent actually uh, was um, stealing my grandmother's. So my grandmother used to wear a sari, and it was always on the like for, for drying at some point. And my cousins used to always take it, and we will we love to see what's what's in the little pond. So there were a lot of uh, little crayfish, crabs, tiny little fish. So we used to put it in, and the sari was so thin that it was like a little net. Obviously, it's not a good thing to do nowadays but we were just curious and we released all of it back again but uh, that amazing diversity is not there anymore quite quite interestingly um, it's slowly coming back into the place my parents are living because my dad is very very engaged with uh, biodiversity but uh, normally you don't see that what do you think has driven that decline in biodiversity Pollution, uh, bad agricultural practices. There's also less sort of wildlife corridors. I think it's also a big problem in, in the UK in general. Um, but I think it's it's mainly pollution and bad agricultural practices. So people would perhaps use, let's say, too much fertilizer or put oil to get rid of uh, weeds and basically only look at the cash crops or like the, the the crops which basically produce a yield but not keep the you know the the, the weeds and the wildlife uh, on the side whereas back in the day there used to be more let's say permaculture forest type agriculture which was basically uh, a way of keeping the richness of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the plants, but also the animals which are living there on, on, on balance. And so when you, you left Sri Lanka and you went to Austria, that must have been interesting because I think probably the biggest threat in the wild in Austria is probably a tick bite, isn't it? I mean, that, I think there's wolves in, in Austria, but you're unlikely to encounter them, surely. And bears now as well, but uh, slowly they're coming back. I think over Slovenia and the wolves over, over Poland. I think, um, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. There, there's there's uh, there's there's uh, there's not so many wolves and bears, but I think they're they're, they're slowly coming back. Um, yes, ticks ticks are ticks are numero uno danger point. So I think uh, it it was like a typical thing in Austria to be vaccinated against ticks, which is part of the school curricula there. And did you spend time in the the Austrian outdoors? Did you go to the mountains with your family? And I presume you must have gone on school trips, surely. There must be a culture of Austrian school trips to the mountains and stuff like that. Yeah, Austria is a very outdoorsy country, which has been really great. And I think be, being in Austria and going, growing up in Austria also brought me very close to like nature and enjoying especially walks in nature hiking and walking is and also skiing as i mean as, as, as you of course know is is such a big part of austrian culture and it really uh, 
brought out my interest as well in like exploring and being out there and especially being in the mountains uh, for me was 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 a really amazing experience ever since I was, I was a child so mountains are sort of my my happy place in that kind of way thanks to Austria and you've managed to travel to places like Mongolia haven't you and and I, I had a question for you about something you mentioned earlier about photography and I think it was in reference to when you worked for for London Zoo. It's, it's funny when you say you work for London Zoo because people will just have an image of you, you know, feeding feeding fish to polar bears and stuff like that. I'm not sure if they've got polar bears there, but because you do something which I think a lot of people don't realise is quite common, particularly in the charity in the charity sector and particularly with environmental charities, um, is people with with skills that are not required of their role so for example you're a photographer you've got photography skills and journalism skills um you use those within within your particularly what it sounds like you did with your work for um, london zoo let's call them zsl um so using photography i mean that's something i've done as well and it's it's, it's something i really enjoy about, about using using those skills and work because i mean i don't think i could ever make it as a, a professional photographer but i was just wondering if you had anything to say about your using your photography when working in informal roles um yeah quite quite often i mean i i used it throughout my my sort of uh career and i think the the the, the moment it started was uh, being at uh, working in for for a magazine in 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 vienna and basically i was interviewing during that period and writing basically down the interview like interviewing the uh, person in in vienna and uh, i think at that point the, the the cameraman couldn't come uh, the photographer couldn't come and I said, do I have a camera? Uh, I could take some photographs as well. Um, and thankfully, they trusted me enough to, to do that. And uh, since then, I actually started enjoying taking fo more fo like photographs more than actually writing. So that's how it started. And then throughout my career, I've been using the camera on various occasions. Might it be with, with, with the role I had? working in Vienna or with, with, with ZSL, uh, which has been practical as well. And it's probably also easier to tell the story in a more authentic way or tell it through your own angle because you're probably closer, more closer to the, to the actual story or the, or, the, or the role. So because you worked in Mozambique with fishing communities, didn't you? Yeah, so one of the projects uh, with, with Ceresdale uh, was where we basically helped coastal communities to ensure that they're more resilient uh, in the current context, but also to like climate uh, change, uh, that they have other ways of income um, apart from only fishing, uh, that also contributing to like less depleting of, of sort of livestock. Uh, but in general, it was just fascinating because one, 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 one very vivid memory was, um, and I've, I've, since then I've never seen anything like it. So basically there's some sort of something called cleaning where, where fisher and communities go out into the beach areas and basically look for anything which is edible. And you have to keep in mind, uh, Mozambique is a sort of a LDC country, a least developed country. Uh, lots of people are living under a dollar a day, so nutrition is a huge, huge issue, especially for this like very, 
communities which are in the north part of uh, Mozambique. It's, it's called the Cabo Delgado region. It's a beautiful area, but all these people are going out in this like almost desert-like area when the uh, ebbs out, basically, and are looking for anything which is edible from 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 different worms to um, fish. There's a lot of sort of questionable practices which you would say now it's questionable but it's basically these people are trying to survive so it's basically mosquito net fish, fishing which is a huge issue in lots of countries uh, so it was a very vivid memory of this like very bright white sort of coral uh, and sand beach which was just uh, visible because the, the water was out and then hundreds and hundreds of people going uh, out to look for food um, and that was on a daily basis. So that, that was something which was also scary, but also like, you know, that, 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 that was basically their life lived there. And so you were photographing these communities whilst working with them? Um, yeah, so basically, I mean, of course, you need to be careful as well when you, when you photograph, especially with, with, uh, with people that, that you get their consent as well. But uh, it was mainly portraying or documenting their life uh, and that without saying what is bad or you know sometimes you have always this narrative or oh, this is this is uh, this is not good or this is they're extremely poor and all, all, all those sort of things but everything is very very norms and very balanced so it's, everything is more complex than just black and white or uh, poor and not poor so it's basically trying to get that angle of like personal stories and conveying a message which it's up to the person who views it to like decide on their own and try to get basically get an interest. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing about a photograph, more like getting an interest uh, and creating a story. And I suppose trust is very important as, as well. Yeah. So a lot of communities I work with, there is normally a period of where you build the trust I mean, photography is always like in that role, there was a byproduct. So not only photography, but if you want to work with different communities, you need to have build a trust, but you need to also have like sort of focal points within that community who you can talk with, who you can engage with. You need to work with sort of elders to get their buy-in uh, and understand different structures within the communities. I mean, of course, it depends on the different uh, workloads, but it's also, I think, a very interesting way of, because normally I've seen it in a lot of my work, but also in like a lot of other colleagues' work where there's an assumption that with progress, or you're coming from a developing country, you come into these not developed countries within brackets and want to show a better way of life. But in a lot of cases, these people already have like a very ancient way of living the lives. And these lives are made more difficult because of a different other influences they can't control. So if they would be left on their own devices, they could sustain a life, but because they've been cut out of certain things or because it might be pollution or whatever, or fishing, industrial fishing, for example, in that context, they are on the, on the brink of like basically really facing hardships. But it was interesting also to like take a step back and learn from them versus just going there and saying, okay, this is a training manual. This is how things should be done versus trying to also understand what their way of living is. 
you, you touched on a little bit there, but what, what are the things that are driving people into that kind of poverty? Is, um, is there this problem with overfishing that's reducing stocks of fish that would have been there to sustain those communities before? Or you also mentioned pollution as well. I mean, what, what is driving people into that poverty? So just to clarify, before I mentioned, basically it's like lugworms which are in in, in the beach. Uh, so not the typical earthworm. Um, but yeah, there, there were different uh, species which you not normally see in a fish market if you go to like uh, also in these villages. So basically they were, they were looking for uh, nutrition in that kind of context. Um, but coming back to your question, it's... Um, I think, yeah, definitely pollution and in industrial scale fishing or overfishing is, is certainly an issue, uh, but also po population size is definitely an issue. So I think uh, working and also basically working with, especially with women uh, in those scenarios is, is, is very crucial. Um, and also looking at issues in a, in a wider context um, and looking for options which are well, uh, or basically scenarios which are which are not really focusing on one particular issue but try to understand the different facets of like this uh, particular society so for example um, if there are fishing communities uh, also showing other agricultural practices where they can for example grow legumes and vegetables to contribute to their uh, nutrition or create sort of protected areas where fishing fish stocks can be recovered which means that people will have ultimately more fish uh, versus just a continuous overfishing and during that periods when they can't fish that they will have other sources of not only income but also nutrition so creating basic it's basically going back to the roots of uh, where we actually come from like basically leaving periods of rest for environment to recover and then going back to harvest. Yeah, and that seems to be a problem the world over, particularly with agricultural um, intensification in, in Europe um, and problems with soil being degraded. So it's, it's interesting how that kind of human impact is, is spread out across the world at the moment um, and unlikely driving um, biodiversity declines as well. So I did say earlier how I'd been watching your Instagram stories of your videos traveling around India. Where have you been visiting recently? So recently uh, I've been to the Andaman Islands, uh, which are an island group off the coast of India. It's in the Bay of Bengal. And I would presume those places are pretty rich in species and biodiverse. Uh, it was it was it was an incredible place. Um, so the Andaman Islands have sort of very interesting uh, biodiversity, as you can imagine, because it's it's islands. There's there's a lot of uh, endemic species, but I was very interested in 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 the sort of the woodland landscapes because there's uh, this amazing. Uh, trees and uh, beach forest areas, which are mainly made out of uh, sort of bullet wood trees, uh, 30 meters tall uh, trees, which are growing directly at the, at, 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 at the beach. So normally when you, and I've, this was the first time that I ever seen such a thing, uh, it felt like prehistoric 
it felt really prehistoric. So it was this this, this massive woodland just at at the shore where we you'd normally expect it to be further inland. And uh, during these excursions as well, it has a very interesting like uh, forest forest life with a lot of endemic birds, uh, lots of lizards, uh, very friendly lizards, which which are not afraid of any any human uh, closeness in a way. And um, then on the other hand, you had the amazing underwater life. Uh, I'm 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 not a diver, but uh, I'm I'm a keen snorkeler and. Uh, we went out with some some uh, seasoned uh, divers and uh, basically went around snorkeled out for for 30 minutes 40 minutes out outside into the into into open waters where you could basically see a massive coral reef uh, and it was just full of puffer fish uh, you could see octopus you see uh, really huge lobsters it's it's just incredible uh, and then I often ask myself, if it looks like this now, how did, how did it look like 100 years ago? Probably, probably three times as much. And then you see all this like paradise and the only situation where you really are reminded, hang on a minute, in the 21st century, was when you basically start snorkeling just 10 minutes outside, uh, further along uh, the coastline, and you see this basically a cemetery of dead corals, just all white uh, corals uh, because of coral bleaching. And uh, that's, that's really puts you back into perspective. Hold on a minute, everything is really connected. Um, and that was where you can see there's this amazing biodiversity, this amazing richness, but then also there's this like, connection to us as a species in a way, I guess, and the 21st century, which was quite, uh, quite eye-opening in, in such a close uh, vis um, uh, vicinity in a habitat. Perhaps you have heard of the Andaman Islands because of more negative news. Um, I think two years ago, a missionary was uh, attempting to convert people, I think, into, in, into Christianity uh, in the North Sentinel Islands, and he was welcomed with uh, balls and arrows and lost his life there. So I didn't go into those areas. Uh, those areas are basically uh, complete. So Andaman Islands is one of the last uh, places on earth where the population and communities which are completely untouched by the 21st century, by, mo by the modern world, basically. Um, so it should stay that way. The islands we went to uh, were basically completely inhabited and uh, linked to the 21st century per se. Uh, you travel from from India and come to a place called Port Blair, which is the main island of the Andamans, uh, which is the capital of, of the Andamans, if you wish. And from there, where, whichever island you want to go to, and there, there are various, uh, there's also volcanic activity uh, of, in one of those islands. Um, you can take a boat, and with that boat, you basically travel through the Bay of Bengal and arrive on whatever island you like to, we were here on, on Havelock Island, which has been fascinating. Um, yeah, and as you said, there's, there's uh, quite a lot of uh, biodiversity there. You also went on a, a photography trip, didn't you, um, with a, a friend of yours? What sort of, what sort of pictures were you taking there? What, what did you see? Where did you go to? So there I went uh, to Utrecht, 
uh, it was with with, uh, with with a good friend uh, called Francis Taylor. You can follow him on Instagram as well. Um, he's a, he's a wildlife photographer, uh, and he's also currently based in uh, New New Delhi. And we went out to. He was photographing. Uh, mainly birds and I was uh, focusing on um, mountain ranges and landscapes for my for my contemporary artwork yeah. and talking about your photography what what equipment do you use when particularly when you went on to that trip what, what did you take with you uh, for that trip I took my 50 millimeter camera the wide angle wide angle lens uh, then my normal go-to lens which is a uh, 20 24 to 70 uh, nikon lens so i'm using a nikon camera it's it's a nikon uh, da10 and i'm not very much normally into like camera equipment and camera gear but why i'm using it is basically for some of my work i need to have like really big very detailed photographs and so i uh, and there's counter arguments to that, but like I used it basically to have more, more and more clearer pixels uh, in my photography. But normally, when I travel, I use two to three lenses maximum, and I also use an analog camera. So, for those of you who don't know about a Nikon D810, it weighs as much as a car. <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty heavy piece of equipment, but it's very. Um, very good camera, isn't it? It's, um, it's very versatile, yeah. And also your 24 to 70 millimeter Nikon lens is a famously brilliant lens, but also famously very heavy. So you must have some you must have some pretty good upper body strength right now. Strong yeah, lens. I have a very good chiropractor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned as well that you have a 35 millimeter film camera. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to know what is motivating you to to take that sort of photography because obviously it's so different to digital and digital has completely just destroyed the film the film market but there is a there is still you know it's still alive the, the film the 35 millimeter film market and and other um other millimeters as well um but wh why do you bring both both different formats with you um i think 35 millimeter at the moment is is it's very trendy. Uh, lots of people are using it to go back to the good old days in a way, I guess. But then there's also still film used from very high end photographers, which are still using it for like you know uh, gallery quality level photography. Why I use it is so I, I have the Nikon FG20, which was the go to one of the go to cameras, which uh, journalists used in in the in the late 80s um and and i use a 35 millimeter lens very simple normally black and white photography and i use it because of slowness really um for me photography is such turned into such a thing which is very quick you can do it on your phone you can do it on with your digital camera you press one button and like it's just uh, shoots faster than you can think and it's basically unwinding the process and for me it was very helpful to go back to basics and have this very manual very slow process where you have to really think to think about the composition you 
it's it's something which you don't do very quickly although of course back in the day you used to uh, it, it it was a camera which you use for for reportage or documentary and it has to be quick but i use it for the opposite i try to be slow with it you have 36 shot uh, and you need to be thinking on how you want to develop it and how how you what what you want to take off why do you want to take a photograph so that's that the thinking and the image happens in your mind and then afterwards the camera is just there to like basically realize it and of course with 36 shots is also like nowadays developing gets more complicated and then so on so it's basically it helps me to like uh and turn the process back and uh, be more thoughtful uh, when I take a photograph. It sounds like you're, tr you're trying to make the, the most of both worlds because you've got the high-end digital SLR with the, you know, big pixel coverage so you can make nice big images, but you're also improve yourself in a more kind of long-term way through using film um, because I used to use film cameras um, when I was a sort of in my late teens. I think a lot of people say, don't they, that they really miss waiting that period of maybe two weeks or something of when after you've taken the pictures for them to actually arrive. Because I used to order them by post and, you know, that, that's how it used to happen. Are, are you processing the images yourself in a, in a, a dark room? I'm not developing my own film at the moment, uh, but now I'm hoping I basically, uh, I'm, I normally get the film roll processed so I can basically have the negatives and potentially could go into the dark room and uh, do my own photographs. So I basically have quite a pile of photographs which need to be fully developed. Uh, so at the moment in, in Delhi, there's a place where I'm hoping to go in the next uh, month or so to, to do that. And at the moment, I mean, we talked a lot about, um, you know, where you've traveled to and places you've lived in. What projects at the moment are you, are you working on? So I'm still working on some documentary projects. One, uh, when I can go travel back to, to uh, Sri Lanka, hopefully, which is with the last uh, indigenous tribes in Sri Lanka called the Vaniale Atto. Uh, try to work with them and the University of Colombo on that in terms of uh, how to how to uh, preserve a culture which is basically passed on through oral history with 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 photography and with audio recordings as well um, and then another project which I'm working with on it, it's more contemporary project which is to do with petri dishes and cave paintings uh, it's basically a project uh, on on the human microbiome. So I'm working with, uh, with with a professor from the Uni of Barcelona and uh, and a lab. So it's it's basically a bit of a quirky project, but I, I shall reveal a bit more on, on on my Instagram page on that in the coming coming weeks and months. Petri dishes and cave paintings. That yes. that's an interesting mixture. I'm reading a book about Neanderthals at the moment. So when you said Oh, I love about, those. Yeah. When you said anything about cave, it, my a light went off in my head. Um, mm. I've got two more questions to ask you before we, mm. we finish. The penultimate question I have is what advice that you would give to people who are interested in 
in your area of work or doing something similar in photography or um, something, as you described it, interdisciplinary photography? I, I would copy something which I got as, an, as, a, as a very quick advice during a book signing once. Uh, at the White Cube in London, uh, there was a book signing once with, with uh, Tracy Emin. And uh, I went to that book signing and I basically overcome my anxiety of like not asking this question, but I just, just went to her and like while she was signing the book, I asked her what uh, makes a great artist which for that period and still for me it's like a like a wider question um and she said three things and that just like came out of the blue and she said like learn to draw um work extremely hard and there are no shortcuts so work extremely hard and there are no shortcuts i think that's 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 these two givens which work for anything but for whatever one's interest to feel this, I think, learn, learn that field and try to get a keen interest in that field. And another thing is, I think it's never giving up. I think the most successful people are the, are the ones which basically, no matter how people say it's not a great idea or you can't realize it, people are, who are stubborn with the idea and just like keep it, keep it going. Those are the most successful people, I think, in a way, who are able to fail. So keep plowing that small field. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. As, as you said earlier. So the, the last question I had for you, Raki, is if you had lots of funding to invest in environmental or social projects, what would you support and why? Probably two things, actually. Mm, one, environment and trees, because I just love trees. Uh, and another one would be children and education. So... I think that there's a really good organization called uh, One T or called the One Trillion Trees uh, Trees Movement. Uh, basically, there's there's a, there's a, there's an argument always uh, if planting tree trees is the uh, solution for everything. Uh, of course, it's it's just one part of the bigger picture. But I think um, basically tackling issues which are which are slowing down the global warming is definitely uh, is planting trees is definitely one way of, of getting there. And the other one is, which is quite key, I think, our, our next generation. I think, like, uh, thanks to people, like, I don't know, uh, I was listening to a podcast today of, of Malala, which is, like, quite, quite interesting, but, like, uh, human rights and the role of women um, in society and the importance, um, but also people like Greta Thunberg. I think there's this generation uh, said, which is, like, doing amazing stuff, and I hope uh, all the issues which our generation or the generations before us couldn't tackle that the next generations will be able to overcome and solve. So I think education is a, is a key. And there are so many different charities around the world. But I think one of the most important things is start, or starting within your communities to like uh, help that. Whatever you can do, I mean, like even planting trees in your garden and also... Uh, working with your communities. I think that's, that's where one can start. Thanks, Raki. Yeah, I really do agree about education. It's such an important thing. I think people do underestimate how important education is. Um, and of course, there is this, in the UK in particular, there's this sort of renaissance of um, children spending time outside. There's the, the awareness of uh, nature deficit disorder 
and the impact that not having a connection with the outdoors and nature, the, the harm that can cause later on in life. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's really important. And I think coming back to, to your point as well, I think uh, from the beginning of when we started talking about what are things which which reminded us or like stayed in our memory, and it was for me this uh, fields in Sri Lanka, the woodlands, and, and that sort of resonates, I think, and that sticks with you even when you're grown up and you want to sort of uh, recreate that like wondrous world of uh, how it was and that's probably the reason why we are doing what we're doing in, in that kind of context. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's a lovely way to, to end the podcast today, Raki. So thank you so much for your time. You've taken us to some places I've never been to before. Um, and I think that people hopefully listening to this, especially in, in a wintry pandemic time, I think people yeah. will really appreciate listening you. to, yeah. to your, your stories and memories of all these places that, um, people can't get to at the moment i mean i wasn't about to step on a plane to mozambique i'm not sure if you can even do a direct flight there but um <laughs> but it, yeah it's been really nice talking to you raki and hearing your your perspective about your work and and your life experience thanks so much for having me it was really great fun cool have a great day and take care thanks Daniel. ciao ciao <laughs>